This sermon is the third in a series of election-themed sermons, and on this final Sunday before Election Day, I want to reflect with you on the fifth principle of Unitarian Universalism, which explicitly promotes the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. In this country, there's arguably no greater use of the democratic process in society at large than our quadrennial election cycle that includes a vote for the office of President of the United States. The explicit emphasis on the democratic process in the fifth UU principle is likely directly tied to the emphasis in our first principle on the inherent worth and dignity of every person. The word democracy, as you may well know, comes from the combination of the Greek words for people and for power. Democracy literally means people power. And today, people power likely brings to mind activists in the 1960s chanting power to the people to protest that the richest segments of our society were increasingly undermining our democracy, if only they could see 50 years into the future. More recently, pro-democracy, the pro-democracy Occupy movement has been protesting our, gro- our increasingly growing wealth gap. And the 2010 Supreme Court ru- ruling, Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission, held that the First Amendment prohibits restrictions on independent political expenditures by corporations. That's only exacerbated the influence of the ultra-rich on our elections further undermining the voice of the poor and the middle class individuals in our democracy. You can be grateful, perhaps, in this month of Thanksgiving and gratitude that Maryland is not considered a swing state, so we haven't been bombarded like Ohio and other places have been with uh, this glut of money. And to follow the money in recent months, USA Today reports that total spending on the presidential and congressional races this year is on pace to reach a record Six billion dollars. Six billion dollars. There, there are also many disturbing threats to our democracy in the false cries of voter fraud, which seem to many observers to be covert attempts or even overt attempts at voter suppression. These anti-democratic trends towards oligarchy, ruled by a few, or plutocracy, ruled by the wealthy, trouble many supporters of the democratic process. And these days, we typically do have positive associations with the word democracy. We hear songs like Edelweiss and remember the sound of music and remember that one opposite of democracy is fascism, totalitarianism, and that assertion of the importance of democracy in the face of top-down hierarchical threats. And so we want to reclaim an authentic democracy of empowered, engaged individuals. But it's important to note in the history of political philosophy that democracy has often been heard in a pejorative sense. That same Greek word demos, which in which the word which in the word democracy means people power, becomes in the word demagoguery a leader who manipulates and exploits the prejudices and emotions of the common people for political gain. Power to the people can be a dangerous notion if the people are an uneducated, unruly mob. Indeed, many founders of this country feared that direct democracy would result in the tyranny of the majority. 
oppressing the rights of individuals or overriding the best interests of society as a whole. One of the most famous examples is the Federalist Papers, uh, number 10, in which James Madison argued that the United States should not be a direct democracy. He was making the case for federalism. It should, be, it should not be a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person, but instead should be a republic, a government in which the scheme of representation takes place. So despite the enthusiasm in the Unitarian Universalist principles for the use of the democratic process in society at large, our country is a representative democracy, not a direct democracy. Nevertheless, we're at the same time not a pure empire, um, despite things you hear to the process, you know, the, to the contrary. Uh, the president is not an emperor. We can bum, vote the bums out of office if we so choose. You can't vote out an emperor. As a result, it, it really is, uh, of, it, as a result of some of these federalist, anti-federalist debates and how they played out in the history of our country, it's quite possible for a presidential candidate to win the popular vote, uh, that most visible result of the democratic process, but lose the election. The existence of the electoral college is, makes such a scenario possible. And that's another one of those safeguards that our founders put in place, wisely or unwisely, uh, against the dangers that they feared of direct democracy and of that direct democracy devolving into demagoguery. As recently as 12 years ago, uh, Vice President Al Gore won more popular votes than Governor George W. Bush, then governor, but lost in the Electoral College, making the 2000 election the fourth time in U.S. history in which the person elected president did not win the popular vote the other three times being 1824, 1876, and 1888. There's even speculation that 2012 could be added to that um, tally, but we'll see, maybe in the early morning of Wednesday. Setting aside uh, these systemic blocks against direct democracy in our country, allow me to take this opportunity to publicly thank all the members and friends of this congregation who have committed significant time, effort, and funds in engaging the democratic process in this election cycle through canvassing, phone banks, uh, and social justice advocacy. In particular, I'm grateful for all the enthusiasm that I've heard in this congregation promoting the passage of Question 4 on Maryland's DREAM Act and Question, question 6 for marriage equality. On Tuesday, Maryland could well become the first state in our union to pass same-sex marriage rights at the ballot box, giving us the freedom to celebrate same-sex unions in this marriage, in this sanctuary. Earlier in our spoken meditation, Terry Tempest Williams raised the question, do we have enough resolve in our hearts to act courageously, relentlessly, without giving up ever, trusting our fellow citizens to join with us in the determined pursuit of a living democracy? That's not an easy prospect. And irrespective of what happens on Tuesday, all those who have made phone calls, sent emails, and engaged in simple, humane conversations about these vital issues, you've helped embody a positive response to William's challenge. I certainly have also heard many of you who have been active online, on the phone, and on the ground in many of the surrounding um, states and counties to Frederick and to Maryland, and that's certainly to be commended as well. 
Now, speaking for myself as someone who spent most of his life in the so-called red states of South Carolina, Texas, and Louisiana, I'm grateful for the opportunity to live in a state in which it is even conceivable that a majority of the population might vote for marriage equality. There is, at the same time, much to be said for the vital importance of open-minded voices who live in the red states and have the courage to stay, to speak out, and to work for change. But this whole blue state, red state division, as well as the increasingly petty, vitriolic, and uncivil um, state of our political discourse, raises important concerns about the future of the democratic process. And in the midst of our electoral squabbles, one book that has received a lot of media attention um, for bringing some much-needed clarity to the underlying dynamics of our divided political landscape is The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt. He's a professor at NYU's um, School of Business, and that's Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, not (laughs) H-A-T-E, though that might be appropriate. Uh, And and in his book, The Righteous Mind asks, what what is it that makes our minds so righteous, you know, that makes conservatives so righteous about the conservative cause and liberals so righteous about the liberal cause and libertarians so righteous about the, you know, these are all presumably good, reasonable people. Why do they so fundamentally disagree? Now, weighing in at a little more than 300 pages without counting the back matter, Haidt's book is not a short read, but the print's relatively large if you're considering reading it. And unlike some books that seem to be an elaboration on one major point that you basically get from the first chapter, Haidt's The Righteous Mind is a layered tapestry of social scientific studies, historical context, and philosophic background. The chart that you see um, reproduced in your order of service under the sermon title is from his book. That line graph uh, illustrates the scores on what he calls the Moral Foundations Questionnaire. Uh, It's from 132,000 subjects collected from the website yourmorals.org. You can visit that and take the questionnaire if you would like and contribute to his ongoing research. And uh, if you start reading his book and reading the footnotes, you'll see that they're, they're working to incorporate libertarianism into this schema, but they haven't quite gotten there yet. The chart in front of you, though, although obviously only one of many typologies for thinking about our political landscape, is based on actual data unlike many political opinions that are out there, and is one way of both articulating our current political divisions as well as gesturing toward how the divide might at least begin to be bridged. To perhaps state the obvious, this chart shows that people who identify as very liberal focus passionately and almost exclusively on care and fairness as foundations for making moral judgments, almost to the exclusion of loyalty, authority, and sanctity. And it is not the case, as liberals sometimes claim, that conservatives don't care about care and fairness. Rather, people who are very conservative seem to care almost equally about all five moral foundations, although when pressed, authority, sanctity, and loyalty to the chagrin of liberals tend to trump care, and fairness for the most conservative among us. So to return to our earlier example of the ballot initiative in Maryland on marriage equality, ideological battles have been playing out around office water coolers and in letter to the editors across this country about the virtues and vices of same-sex marriage. 
Liberals tend to mount arguments, you may have noticed, about fairness. If opposite-sex loving adults are free to marry the, person, the people they love, then it's only fair to allow same-sex loving adults to marry the person they love. And arguments about care. Allowing same-sex marriage is the kind and compassionate choice. The Unitarian Universalist slogan, standing on the side of love, is a consummate example of liberals emphasizing the moral foundation of care. In contrast, conservatives tend to argue against homosexuality with appeals to authority. You may have seen references to so-called biblical marriage or sanctity, arguing that same-sex relationships are disgusting. You've probably heard that one as well. A classic liberal retort would be to point out that most claims about the Bible supporting monogamy cavalierly ignore the rampant polygamy in the Bible, even among some of those uh, people that are lifted up. But Hate's chart shows that attempts from liberals to debunk conservative arguments by undermining the authority of the Bible or by pointing out that emotions like disgust are for the most part only social constructs that depend on cultural context. You know, think about how you feel about eating cat or dog, right, or horse. These, these things about disgust are very much cultural context, um, contextually different. So that when liberals mount these arguments, they usually only trigger that third conservative value of loyalty, causing a further entrenchment into that person's current beliefs. So here potentially is one of the takeaways of Haight's book for our democratic process. We'll likely remain deeply divided as a nation if we just keep preaching to the choir and preaching in that song that the choir wants to hear. If liberals only talk in terms of care and fairness, then most conservatives are never going to be convinced to change their position. And it doesn't count if liberals only talk about authority, sanctity, and loyalty in negative terms, to demythologize the Book of Mormon or to criticize the Vatican. To maximize the chance of convincing conservatives to support issues such as marriage equality, liberals need to learn to speak about morality in ways that conservatives can hear. According to Haight's chart, that would mean front-loading arguments that appeal to authority, to sanctity, um, to loyalty. That's why books such as Daniel Helminiak's What the Bible Really Says About Homosexuality are so important. Similarly, it's no mistake that when conservative pundit Andrew Sullivan, who happens to be gay, wrote a book about legitimizing homosexuality in our country, he titled it Virtually Normal. Sullivan cares about advancing gay rights and about conservative politics. And being familiar with both worldviews, he strategically chose to promote gay rights with the argument that many same-sex couples are virtually normal. They're essentially just like your average um, everyday American with that minor exception of what happens behind closed bedroom doors. In addition to the moral foundations chart, another central insight in Haight's book is that when we make moral judgments, often intuitions come first, strategic reasonings come second. So we have a gut reaction to something, and then we figure out how we can justify our gut reaction. We don't do this uh, intentionally, but it's what we do actually. As a social scientist, hate is not principally trying to prescribe how he thinks humans should make moral judgments. Instead, he's trying to describe 
what he sees when he does study after study after study of actual human beings making moral decisions. And what he's noticed in study after study is that most moral judgments are made less like a scientist, carefully weighing all the available data, and more like a lawyer or a press secretary that offers argument after argument in, in favor of previously determined positions. You know, think about a press secretary. They get all these questions bombarded at them, but they're not empowered to change the position. You know, that, they're just there to think of argument after argument to spin whatever predetermined position has already been determined. But even those of us who aren't press secretaries act like them a lot, even if we don't realize it. That certainly includes myself. Studies show that we often make moral decisions based on our immediate emotional reaction, then we use reasoning to legitimize that initial intuitive response. A few weeks ago in the first in this um, series of sermons on election 2012, I gave the example that far too many debates between liberals and conservatives quickly become predictable, repetitive, and tiresome. I sometimes think of it as similar to each party beating their head against a brick wall. The wall of respected um, predetermined opinions escapes unscathed, but each person's head starts to hurt a lot. <laughs> Hate's work invites us to notice when this frustrating pattern is happening. He says, notice this. Notice when it just feels like you're just beating your head against a brick wall. When you find yourself debating someone with significantly different moral foundations than you, Notice when your interlocutor is acting more like a lawyer or a press secretary than a scientist. Notice if each time you point out an inconsistency in his or her argument the, or something that's really just a myth that they have bad data about, that when that person simply searches as quickly as possible for a new supporting reason, even something like, I suspect you've heard this before, I don't know, I know what I believe, but I, I'm not sure why. I, I know there's a good reason, but I can't think of it right now. Uh, the challenge is, so is to notice when your interlocutor is acting like a lawyer or a press secretary, uh, always taking, uh, always on the offense or defense, but never questioning that, that very foundation and never taking alternative positions seriously on their own terms. So one of the principal ways that hate says we can escape from this vicious, unproductive cycle is really personal relationships. Now that's really the only, one of the main ways he sees out of this dilemma. Relationships um, play into the importance uh, that conservatives in particular place on loyalty. That's why, for example, you see even very conservative politicians like former Vice President Dick Cheney supporting same-sex marriage rights when his daughter, Mary, comes out of the closet as a lesbian and gives birth to two of his grandchildren. Building personal relationships with people you disagree with strongly may seem like a lot of work, but whoever said changing the world was easy? There has only been time this morning to really barely graze the surface of Haight's book. Everything I've said this morning barely touches on the first third of his, of his work. But I hope that I have perhaps given you at least a few frameworks for engaging the democratic process. As Terry Tempest Williams challenged us in the spoken meditation, democracy depends on engagement. A first-hand accounting of what one sees, what one feels, and what one thinks, followed by the artful practice of expressing the truth of our times through our own talents, 
gifts and vocations, of thinking, no matter what is my intuitive response, doing that hard work of why did I have that response and why do other people have different intuitive responses. So the question becomes, what are your unique talents, gifts, and vocations? Who do you know? Who's in your sphere of influence, your spheres of influence? Where are you uniquely able to engage the democratic process, either one-on-one or in a larger way? In Williams' words, where are you called? Where are you called and where are you able to question, to stand, to speak, to act?